This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. 3% of all the water on Earth, just 3% is fresh water. On this program, the local experts studying and doing research on that 3% is Madeline Stanley. Madeline, welcome to Humans on Rights. Thank you so much, Stuart, for having me today. I feel very fortunate to be here and talking about, about water in a place that has so much of it. Okay, and I just want to just let everybody know that you are a project officer with the International Institute for Sustainable Development's Water Program, where you're working to connect science to policy on water-related challenges. You're an expert in wetland ecology and biological science, and you're currently pursuing a PhD in biosystems engineering locally here at the University of Manitoba, studying the use of floating wetlands to remediate oil spills in freshwater shorelines. Let's start at the beginning, the place to where you work, the International Institute for Sustainable Development, or it's shortened down to the IISD. Give us an overview of what is the IISD, when was it established, and what is the mandate? So the International Institute for Sustainable Development is an independent think tank here in uh, in Winnipeg. It's, it's headquartered here, but we're also all across the globe. Uh, we were established in 1990 in Canada, uh, and we began publishing the Earth Negotiations Bulletin in 1992. So we're an independent think tank, and we're championing sustainable solutions for the 21st century problems. The overall mission of the work with ISD is to promote human development and environmental sustainability. And we do this through research and analysis and knowledge products that really support sound policymaking. So we have uh, core focus areas of climate, resources, economies, act together and engage, creating this create. And we also have five programs of economic law and policy, energy, resilience, tracking progress and water. And as you mentioned, I work for the water program. So the ISD Experimental Lakes Area was originally created as a response to the growing concern surrounding algal blooms on Great Lakes. And this was particular concern for Lake Erie. In 1966, uh, the Freshwater Institute was established in Winnipeg by the Fisheries Research Board of Canada. They appointed Jack Valentine as director and Wally Johnson as head scientist to address the problem of eutrophication. So eutrophication is, is essentially the excess nutrients that are received in waterways that drive harmful algal blooms. And we do experience that here in Manitoba, particularly in Lake Winnipeg, where we experience these um, very large algal blooms every single year. Typically, people see them on the edges of beaches, um, and it's also often, you know, prim- um, discussed in in newspaper articles every single year, this continuous problem that we've been experiencing. Madeline, is that sometimes where people would say that maybe you shouldn't be swimming in some of these beaches? Is that that a a cause of that or is that something different? In terms of recreation, there are uh, concerns for some of the harmful algal blooms because there are toxins that can be produced by this type of algae. 
And they might have recreational swimming bands or beach closers. That might be a result of this uh, drinking water advisories. Also for your pets and livestock, that's also, of course, a concern. But that's kind of that human interaction. So it definitely can have a large impact on recreation, which, you know, beaches around Manitoba are often <laughs> used for. Uh, so it can be, you know, quite a big impact to communities around, around those areas as well. And I just want to come back to one thing is just that I think it's important to really sort of put a pin in the fact that you are a local Manitoban. Uh, you're doing your study here locally at the University of Manitoba, and you're working for uh, an organization that is, I'll say headquartered, I think I'm right about that, in yes. Winnipeg, but that you have an international reach. Tell us a little bit about how is it that you came, there's a, not you, but the, this Institute for International Sustainable Development established in Winnipeg, have international reach on the importance of the work that it's doing? Well, in terms of, of, of water, I'll speak to that because that's where my expertise lie. The, there's, there's freshwater problems all around the world. And the work that we do at the Experimental Lakes area has international significance of our understanding of a changing climate. That's not something unique to hear. Um, we experience climate change uh, all around the world. There's increase of industry everywhere. We're seeing those pollutants entering the waterway. So having a facility that understands research and really dives into the, the causes and changes in the environment uh, allows us to understand how to actually target those solutions in order to implement them. And one case example I'll use around algal blooms, as I mentioned again, one of the largest studies and longest running experiments at the ISD Experimental Lakes area is the eutrophication study or the algal study on the addition of nutrients to those lakes. And the results from this work actually had huge international and policy impact, which actually resulted in the the removal of phosphates from detergents and soaps, which are uh, were a large concern for introducing phosphorus into them. So the great thing about working with the ISD and the ISD Experimental Lakes area is the ability to communicate, collaborate with industries and share that information to drive policy change and to, to drive decision-making. So as an example, again, talking about something that's happening here locally that had an impact on something with a far broader reach, something international that had to deal with removing, was it removing, what's from the laundry detergent? What did you, what was it removed? Um, it removes like phosphorus compounds. So phosphates, yeah. So phosphorus is, uh, like the, is the kind of main nutrient that drives these harmful algal blooms. There's been a lot of studies that look at the carbon, uh, carbon nitrogen and phosphorus compounds within them. And it was identified based on work that was conducted at the Experimental Lakes area that phosphorus was indeed the driver of this and that that was the targeted compound that, you know, should be managed. And that's something that we still have a challenge with here in Manitoba. Uh, our wastewater introduces phosphorus. We've got land runoff from agriculture and other industrial practices. And I will speak to this, but I think this is something that everyone kind of deals with is that phosphorus still is a challenge. And yet we know it's a challenge, but we still are dealing with it. Well, I think that it's important to uh, reinforce really again, Madeline, that I know that your focus is on water. There's a team of people that you talk about that are involved with the International Institute for Sustainable Development here in Winnipeg. But again, the, the, the reach that it has and the importance it has, I think is, is really worth noting. And that yes, there's still issues to be dealt with, but the leadership that's happening with the team that's involved in this, I think is, is something that is, is really worth mentioning. I happen to go onto your website, uh, the, the website for the International 
Institute for Sustainable Development, great website. Uh, and I would, uh, you know, anybody that's listening to this, go on to that. I mean, even the things like the the video flyover that you can sort of see the uh-huh. camp. I mean, first and foremost, is that spectacular, beautifully scenery or what? <laughs> it is. I'm so fortunate to, to be able to have that opportunity to work in such a beautiful place. You know, one of the great things that that, that happens at the IISD is that you are looking at uh, the studies that you do. You're involved in policy, but what you're trying to do is always connect the science to the policy. And I think that that's something that's really important. And I wonder if you could just speak about that. It is very essential to connect the research that we're doing to policy and decision making. Um, Otherwise, there'd really be no purpose doing it just for curiosity. So the work that we do is really try to take these 21st century challenges, as I mentioned, and looking for solutions and looking for ways to make decisions. That really is driven by our understanding of these systems. And to do that, we need to do science or research on those systems. We take that knowledge, we take our experts, and we are able to synthesize that and understand how to develop solutions and how we should be managing those systems. We're able to translate that information from this kind of scientific uh, jargon, I'll say, and turn it into something that's approachable and comprehensive in order to make sound decisions. And I think that that pathway is uh, really important in terms of translating the work that we do. Uh, also, I'll just mention the the tagline for ISD is, you know, part scientist, part strategist, ISD delivers the knowledge to act. And I think I've been thinking about this a lot the last, you know, few days I've been talking about developing this podcast, but the concept of knowledge to act is, is really that kind of connection, uh, that bridge to order to make those actions and to make decisions. We need to understand our systems and I'll use water here. We need to understand water in order to effectively do so. So I think everything kind of is overlapping here, but yeah. What I think is so incredible is that again, you know, I want to keep coming back to kind of this 3% you know, Madeline, that, that was when I started to do a little bit of reading about this, that, that kind of really was, uh, had a huge impact on me, 3%. But what I think is also important and interesting is that you say that, you know, the fresh water that is around the world. So the issues that you're talking about, that is the issue of taking science and looking at connecting science to policy, to strategy, you know, it's, it's worldwide. It's not just, as you say, it's not a Canadian issue. It's not a Amer- United States issue or a North American issue. It is worldwide. And again, I think to be involved in something that you know that is happening here locally, but that has an impact internationally must be um, an amazing sort of sense of of accomplishment and a sense of pride. Absolutely. And I think that from... From just even looking at the history of the ISD ELA, I've seen a lot of the amazing impact that it has had and the scientists and the researchers that have been able to be involved in the work that they've done. It's incredible. And the the reach that it's had, the collaborations that have been developed over time, it it, it honestly blows my mind. And this is maybe me being still you know young in my career and learning a lot, but I feel so fortunate that I'm able to work in a facility so close to home that has this kind of range of impact and the ability to, you know, have these collaborations and also have that connection to industry to have those larger impacts and communication of the work. Mm. Amazing. It is amazing. And the fact you're local, you'll be able to sort of pursue your career here, I think is, uh, as you said, it's, it's really quite, uh, quite spectacular. At the beginning, uh, we talked about the IISD 
and the experimental lake area having, I think you said 58? Yes. Yeah. There's 58 lakes. And are they all sort of in the same area, Madeline? Are they sort of, when I say connected, I'm not sure that is the right word uh, from your perspective, but are they kind of in the same area? Yeah, so maybe I'll just kind of come back to a bit of like the history of, of, of the ELA as well. So I had talked a little bit about how the Freshwater Institute was established here in the 1960s. And in 1968, that's essentially when the Experimental Lakes Area opened. And this was actually in partnership by Government of Canada and Ontario. So they basically selected a region of land and water that designated it as that region. And yes, those 58 lakes are within kind of a region. Some of them are, you know, right beside that road that we access, but some of them require, you know, a few portages, a few boating, um, but it is all in the same region. It is a designated research facility. So I think you talked about earlier, the drone flyover, which is just so beautiful, but that is our central field station. So we have all of our laboratories, all of our residences, and that road that we come in on, you, if you look at a map, you can see all of the, all of the lakes that are kind of scattered around the area that are designated as, as that facility. I mentioned the Experimental Lakes area was opened in 1968. The leader of the Experimental Lakes investigations was Dr. David Schindler, and he held that position until 1989. And I just would like to say that we were very saddened to hear of of his passing last week on March 4th. And he really does leave the legacy of uh, the Experimental Lakes area and the work that uh, has been done um, for, for so many people here. Yeah, no, thanks for mentioning that. Um, and then I just would like to quickly mention that, you know, it was started with the with the government was the kind of leader of the of the uh, ELA itself. But in 2014, it assumed it was assumed control by the IISD. So now becoming the ISD Experimental Lakes Area. And it was under three new agreements to ensure the facility had long term operation. So I said earlier, it was started in 1968. So we've been conducting whole ecosystem experiments for over 50 years, which is you know pretty incredible to be able to do that. And we're now continuing to respond to the threats of world's fresh water and converting those findings into, you know, sound and effective policy. So again, bridging that science, science to policy opportunity, which is, which is one of the great opportunities with the, the ISD and ELA kind of joining. Yeah, no, and that, that's a, that's a great explanation and a great background on that, Madeline. Thank you so much for that. You know, the one thing that we had talked about prior to, uh, to hitting the record button today, from a human rights perspective, Water is not only a human right, but perhaps is taken for granted, much like the air we breathe. So knowing again that March 22nd is recognized as World Water Day, how important is that day? And what does it mean to you as someone who studies fresh water? So this is a great question. As you mentioned, we chatted briefly about this before, and I've actually thought a lot about this this last week and my connection to water. So from a human rights perspective, water is ab- absolutely a human right. It kind of goes without saying. And from our conversation and my thoughts of this, I've just been reviewing some of the work from the Sustainable Development Goals and UN Water. And there was there was a note that I was saying that water is a human right and not a commodity. And I think that that is something that is so clear to many people. But like you said, people take it for granted and don't really realize. And maybe that's a function of just people not being connected to water, understanding where that water comes from and where it goes. But again, thinking about um, the UN water and sustainable development goals, it's all about kind of everyone should be able to have access to safe and affordable water. And whether it's clean water for you know consumption or for sanitation, not everybody has this. And this isn't 
this isn't a problem that is only in certain countries. We experience that here in Canada and also in Manitoba. There are people who have, you know, don't have access to drinking water and they don't have safe recreational water to, to have. And, and I think that your comment about taking things for granted, I think that it's so easy to forget when you're able to flick on that tap and clean water comes out that is safe. I think there's some level of disconnect for some people who have that. And then you also mentioned uh, World Water Day. So on March 22nd every year, uh, there's World Water Day. um, And every year there's a different theme. And these kind of themes or initiatives can promote discussions and webinars. And there's tons of communication across the globe to talk about these problems that everybody shares. And it's a great opportunity to actually just listen and learn and share something. Um, And like we talked about before, challenges that we experience here in Canada are different, but not not totally different from other countries all around the world. So it's a great opportunity to do that. And these themes can focus on relationships with humans and access to water, as I mentioned, ecology and pollutants and solutions. And the last few years, I'll just kind of highlight some themes before I get into this year's theme, which I think is so relevant, were water and climate change in 2020, uh, leaving no one behind in 2019, and nature for water, which is looking at nature-based solutions in 2018. But this year's theme, which I think is really, really great, is valuing water. And this is essentially to promote the conversation of what water means to you. And I've been thinking about this a lot and kind of your question on how important is this day to somebody who studies fresh water. Of course, right there, like I study fresh water. It's my education and interest and it drives what I do every single day and obviously it it goes without saying that uh, water and this ability to discuss and communicate it is excellent and I really appreciate it but I also feel like I've had so much opportunity to be connected to water in different ways rather than just like in this studying or work capacity. I grew up here in Winnipeg. Manitoba has so much fresh water. It doesn't take very long to find some if you, you know, either walk anywhere in Winnipeg or have, you know, the means of transportation. Um, So growing up near water, I just, I just feel very drawn to it, very connected to it. So on a personal level, the ability to have fresh water for various purposes is really important. It's hard. It's kind of hard to explain, actually, how it, what it kind of means to me. I've been thinking about it a lot, and I and I've been struggling, kind of putting it to words, honestly, because you know the value of water isn't an economic perspective. It it's different for every single person. Is it for your safety and health? Well, of course. Is it for recreation? Is it educational? For uh, many people, it has cultural significance, and there's a lot of religious or spiritual like practices with water or, you know, relationships with water. And there's also that connection to the environment. So I don't know if I can say specifically the the specific words, if that makes sense. It it totally makes sense. And I I mean, I, you know, I just, I know, uh, I don't know you well, Madeline, I've read some of your, uh, some of the work you're doing, just listening to you. You're incredibly passionate about it for, for the right reasons. And that just comes through uh, uh, in, in flying colors here. And I, I guess the, you know, the thing about it is, and I'm not sure if, um, you know, from your perspective, you're so interested in studying fresh water as a child or some growing up. Was there something that that triggered your interest or is there something that you looked at and said, you know, I'm concerned if we don't do something that maybe this water that we take for granted, uh, there could be there could be issues. Is there, did you have a, a something that kind of triggered that for you? Yeah, and I actually was, I was actually thinking about that this week as well. And I think that it was great to, to talk to you initially because it brought up a lot of questions for myself about 
how did I get here? Essentially, like, how did I, you know, end up in this position? And I, again, I, I will say I'm very fortunate to be able to go and see freshwater and, and have a cottage to go to. My family has a cottage on Lake Winnipeg and I grew up on the lake pretty much in the water all the time. But then I also remember being a kid, you're coming out and you wash bathing suit and it's green. Like it's so green. And I was always so curious about that. And I remember in high school, we had to write this paper. And for some reason, I really wanted to write it on algal blooms. Like that was what I wanted to write it about on Lake Winnipeg, so near and dear to my heart. And I did, and I and I loved it. I loved researching it. I was learning about the, the you know the research boats that go on the lake and you know monitor the water. And it was just this complete sell for me. But to be honest, even from that point, it, it didn't seem like it was something I could do. Like I didn't really know. And I went, I went to university. I thought I was going to do a chemistry degree. I found out soon that that was not the path for me. And I ended up going into this ecology program and. I decided I wanted to do an honors thesis and I, cause I loved research. I knew that I liked it. I started kind of looking at professors and figuring out who might, what I want to take on this research with. And I met my then unknown person, but now a very close person to me is Dr. Gordon Goldsboro, um, who had their kind of description of algae and water quality and wetlands. And I knew instantly like, this is what I want to do. And I remember meeting with with them and talking about what I wanted. And it kind of just felt like it just started. Like after I started having that conversation, it just felt like it felt really right. Felt like what I wanted to do. And it was almost like instantly that I became involved in research. And that's just kind of the way it started and the way it continued to go. And then now I'm here working with ISD and I'm now doing my PhD. And it just seems that I'm continuing to kind of grow in this field and learning so much every single day and blown away. It's a fascination because I think most of us who have had the chance to, you know, grow up as kids and whether you go to the beach or if you're fortunate enough to have a cottage and you go swimming, you know, inevitably, uh, you know, at, at some point it's fish flies. We got to deal with the fish flies. You know, they, you know, all of a sudden, oh, there are these fish flies. But then you see the, the algae that, that comes and people wonder, you know, where's that coming from? What does it mean? And what does it look like? And so it's for you to sort of look at that and say, you know, this is something I want to learn about and be involved with. And then to have the IISD here, you know, that's, that's really, really amazing. Madeline, if it's okay with you, what I'd love to do is, is start to talk into a little bit about now what you're doing as an example. Sure. One of the areas that I, I saw and I came across this word that you are involved in uh, using an adaptive monitoring project. And I wonder if you might sort of walk us into w- what is that? What's the value? Why do we need that? What, how does it serve its purpose? And, and let's, let's explore that a little bit, because that's something you specifically are involved in. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I'll take a bit of a step back here, kind of thinking about water across Canada, water locally. Um, it's out of threat. We see a change in climate. We see pollution from industries. We see it changing over time. And in order to monitor it or, or to understand it, we need to, we need to monitor. We need to have that knowledge. And this is, again, kind of in order to act and make decisions, we need to understand what's going on. So kind of, again, that bridging science to policy or science to decision-making concept. In order to understand how things have changed, where we are currently and where we're going, we need to 
see it. We need to monitor it and get that data and, and have those interpretations to do that. So there's lots of monitoring programs all across Canada and the world and locally. They can be run federally or provincially. And there's also a lot of organizations and local groups that do this monitoring as well. And the thing that I'd like to know is that everybody everywhere is always limited by some sort of logistical capacity. And this is something that I talked about in that blog that you read on Watching the Water. But this can be limited by trained personnel who are able to go out and collect that information, space and time. Obviously, there's water everywhere. And if you want to monitor it, you need to have the time to get there, the space it takes to get there. So those are some of the limitations. And then finances and budgets always seem to limit everybody in every sort of style of life. So and unfortunately, because of limitations and these things, we may have gaps and we may have you know, we're getting as much knowledge as we can, but sometimes there are gaps of knowledge. In order to make those decisions, we need we need that knowledge and we need that information. There was some watershed reports that came out by WWF Canada, which were essentially to look and assess the threat and overall health of watersheds in Canada. And they kind of synthesized all the information and looked at these sub-watersheds and were able to identify, you know, how healthy a region was. And unfortunately, a lot of those watersheds didn't even have enough information to identify whether it was uh, threatened or to assess the overall health. And that's pretty shocking because here in Canada, we have so much fresh water and we have amazing scientists. And yet that we still have this kind of lack of knowledge. And what year was that? Yeah, fairly recent. Yeah. Uh, In the last kind of few years, these reports came out. So it's nothing from decades ago. And it's it's, it's recent enough, and it's, it's kind of shocking, honestly, that we don't have that information because we have these excellent programs. We have programs that monitor water, and why can't we bridge this knowledge, and why can't we generate enough of it to understand the state of our watersheds? And this kind of came onto this concept of this adaptive monitoring, as you said. So it's not a new concept. It's not something that's like very shiny, but it's kind of should be considered as an adapting or iterative process to adjust monitoring and management in order to kind of create decisions. And and the the importance of that, I think also is we experience like a changing climate and we experience different pollutions and that changes over time. So that means we should be monitoring as new things are arising, uh, if that makes sense. So this is super important about making decisions because we may never have enough data, but we're going to have to start making decisions if we want to make sure that we're sustaining water and making sure that it's here you know, now and also for future generations to come. So this kind of process is, is very cyclical. So the concept might be you start with a design of a program, you might monitor, then you analyze that monitoring, then that might drive decisions, and then you implement those decisions, but then you might come back full circle and learn something from that and then adjust. It's adaptive as you're kind of working through it, but you're you're generating knowledge and you're kind of creating this big picture over time. And you're able to kind of collect all this information in different forms. It doesn't have to be that standard monitoring that we you know, know so well. It can be all these different forms of data to kind of synthesize this really great picture. And I think one of the things that's super interesting is what I've seen in the last few years is what kind of the availability of us kind of collecting information, how that's changed is, I mean, everyone has experienced this personally. We have now, everyone has a smartphone in their pocket. Right. So technology has just boomed and we've seen this massive growth in technology. Um, People are taking photos. There's satellites in the sky. There's more tech organizations. And I think what's really interesting is that 
you know, this isn't just about going and collecting a water sample. It's about, you know, being very collaborative. So this opportunity for this adaptive process, you know, isn't to replace existing monitoring programs, it's to collaborate. So it can be through, you know, integrating community-based monitoring programs, which is like a community-led initiative. We do have a community-based monitoring program here in Manitoba, which is the Lake Winnipeg uh, Community-Based Monitoring Network. We also have the Lake Winnipeg Data Stream, which is like a a platform, an open uh, open uh, data platform for all of the data. Um, so we're able to have people involved in this uh, sort of thing and kind of fill those gaps as well. There's researchers and universities that are collecting this information. There's growth in these smaller organizations and tech groups that, you know, we work closely with in order to kind of help bridge those technology kind of concepts and help us monitor. Um, there's satellites that, that record these images of the earth and that also tells us a lot about what's going on and the thing that you know we'll talk a bit about more today is just about real-time sensors and higher frequency capacity and how we've been able to kind of grow in this field and which i think was what i mostly spoke about in terms of that blog on watching the water that you had to some extent, Madeline, what's fascinating is you talk about, you know, everybody has a cell phone in their pocket. In other words, everybody's using technology. And there's always this concept, I think, out there that technology is sort of this disruptor. You know, you can use technology as this disruptor. And you're really looking and talking about how technology is, is being used to sort of, in a very positive way, but to, you know, be a disruptor of kind of how things have just been taken for granted. Nobody's been looking into it. Nobody's been tracking it. Nobody's been getting sort of baseline information for it. And so now you're bringing that all back so that, you know, on a shared basis, on a collaborative basis, that you're starting to be able to sort of get some of this baseline that starts to allow you to come back to what the ISD is all about, which is, you know, collecting the science and creating policy and strategy around that. Yeah, absolutely. And this, like you said, it's just, we have seen science change over the last, say, 100 years, for example, we've seen it grow. We've seen, you know, these amazing opportunities develop and the way that we analyze things. We've also seen technology grow and and we should kind of collaborate, I should say, because that seems to be the thing that I'm always, you know, highlighting and pushing is the ability to collaborate. This is not one challenge that any one person should take on. We have the ability to work together to kind of create this really nice team to tackle these really large 21st century challenges that we have. Like you said, tech is kind of seen as a disruptor, but like, let's use it to our advantage and fill those gaps. It can be anywhere from a photo or the ability to, to create an app and detect and write down information. All that information is so valuable. It doesn't have to be, like I said, the most standard classic spreadsheet of data, all information, right. whether it's shared you know, on different platforms or different ways is incredibly valuable, especially if we don't have enough of it as is to kind of create this picture. So, you know, pulling everything in is like something that we should use to our advantage. You know, the notion of, you know, having a, a smartphone in your pocket while you're in a boat trying to get information, you know, it's great to get the information from the water. Don't drop yes, the phone do not drop in the, the water. <laughs> Madeline, let's talk a little bit about the AquaHive telemetry now, again, talk about technology. Again, I looked up a little bit about that, but I'd love you to tell us about what is that? How does it work? Who invented it? And, and how are, are you using that? You know, I had highlighted earlier the need for real-time sensors or higher frequency. So part of that work kind of included the deployment of almost a pilot test system uh, on at one of the experimental lakes, which is Lake 227, which is probably one of the most studied lakes uh, at the experimental lakes area. It's been 
studied for probably over 50 years. Pretty incredible. But the Aqua Hive is a telemetry platform. So we basically deployed this platform on the lake. It's attached to a sensor. So the sensor hangs in the water column. It's able to, we had it recording hourly water quality data. That sensor then, so it's recording that information, but the Aqua Hive telemetry platform allows that data to be recorded by the sensor. It takes that data, transmits it to uh, satellite and then back to our computer. So it's very, it has this low latency ability. And what that means is it has the ability to record and transmit data from the sensor in the lake to our screens on our computer with little to no time delay. And that's super, super valuable because with COVID, especially this last year, we have to be in the safety of our homes. Our, our ability to get access to the site was very limited. So us being able to deploy that sensor and yet still monitor how the site's or how the lake was doing and responding over the season is an incredible opportunity to be able to have that. The platform itself, the AquaHive, is is uh, built here locally in uh, Pinawa, Manitoba, by Aquatic Life Limited. Um, so we worked with them to kind of create what we were looking for, what kind of parameters we wanted, and we picked it up and we deployed it, and they helped us get it all set up, and we're able to monitor the lakes effectively and safely from our homes. And the other thing I just wanted to to ask you, Madeline, is you mentioned Lake 227, which you said has really been highly researched. What does 227 stand for? And, I, you know, most people sort of say, <laughs> well, you know, that should be the Madeline Stanley Lake. You know, it should have a name, you know. But you talk about these 58 lakes that, you, that are involved in the experimental lakes. Are these all numbered? And just give me a history about what is that about? Yeah, so there's actually an excellent, so speaking of blogs, there's an excellent blog on the site that actually talks about the history of why the lakes are all numbered. So, no, there's not like a, a, a name for the lake, and I'm pretty sure if Lake 27 was to be named, it would probably not be named after, after me. But when the area was being surveyed, the lakes were given an, an ID number. So like 227, some of the lakes that, that we work on, for other example, are 114 or 239 or 240. So they're all kind of identified by a number ID. And that's uh, how we typically refer to them. There are a few that have had you know, names been given. But no, typically, it's, they're, all, they're all numbers. <laughs> There's no interesting name. You know, again, what it is, is that... Uh... It keeps the science real, right? In terms of keeping the numbers there. Yeah. I was just going to add on a Lake 227, as I mentioned, is part of the longest running experiment at the ISD ELA. And that was on the eutrophication of algal blooms that I had mentioned. So researchers have been adding phosphorus to that lake for over 50 years to study the effects of, of nutrients on algal blooms. And the research on eutrophication, as I mentioned, really did have international impact and, and did change water policy. And I think that's like one of the most perfect case examples of some of the work that um, ISD ELA has done to have that kind of that large scale impact. I think, again, I think that's quite amazing. One of the things that, uh, you know, I, again, just in your research, and I'm going to come back to a question that I want to talk to you about, but cattails. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about cattails? Because, you know, again, I'll just say that as a a kid, I mean, I grew up on a farm and, you know, cattails for us, uh, you know, we would just pick them and then we would wait and blow them into the wind and see what would happen. I mean, that's sort of what we knew, but there's a lot to what cattails provide, I think, to fresh water. Do you want to just give us a thumbnail on that? Sure, absolutely. And I think you're coming back a little bit into what I do for some of my PhD research. So cattails, they're an emergent vegetation species, uh, commonly found in wetlands. People 
I might find them in their roadside stitches and everything. And sometimes they'll find cattails to be like a nuisance species because they grow very, very rapidly. They're they're big. There's tons of them, but they are also very, very effective at taking up uh, water. And what comes up with water typically also comes up with contaminants. Um, so there's been a lot of work on the potential of phytoremediation, which is the concept of using plants to remedi- remediate contaminated sites. Uh, that's been done around the world. That's not really a new concept. Wetlands are also called nature's kidneys because they are very, very good at filtering water. And that's something that's really important in Manitoba is because we have seen, and not even just Manitoba, I should say, but we've seen a lot of loss of wetlands across the prairies. And without having wetlands, you're you're not having that filtration of of water, uh, which means you're getting more runoff, more nutrients entering Lake Winnipeg, resulting in these alcoplop problems, um, like I mentioned. So cattails, some of the work that I do uh, is really looking at the capacity of different emergent vegetation species at treating water-related challenges. Everything from excess phosphorus, which is some of the work that's been done at the ISD ELA, and then some of the work that I'm looking into now for my PhD research is the ability of emergent uh, wetland plants, not just cattail, but a few sedge species, to stimulate the degradation of oil products when they're planted on platforms. So very like a natural process, but plants take up water, they put oxygen into the water, they support all sorts of microorganisms, and that kind of really great synergistic relationships um, builds these small little ecosystems that are able to treat freshwater pollutants that are a big challenge. So So I'm going to ask you a little bit about your research um, and how it benefits local communities. But before we go there, I just want to just ask you, cattails, good or bad? I'm a big fan. Okay. All right. Fair enough. (laughs) I'm a very, very big fan. Good. Yeah, good. That's great. That's all good. That's fantastic. Um, Let's go to, to talk a little bit about how does your research benefit local communities, Madeline? Coming back to it, water is essential for everything. And it is threatened. Uh, by climate and by pollutants. Um, And that means we're putting communities who rely on water at risk at all times. People are at risk. People don't have access to safe drinking water. Water quality changes rapidly. There might be thresholds um, that might alert when it's not safe. So in terms of of local communities, this kind of concept, and I'll specifically talk about this high-frequency monitoring, is these tools uh, like the AquaHive and these sensor platforms can be implemented directly there. That information can be readily available. Like I said, with little to no delay, we're getting hourly data. We're literally watching it across the screen every single hour upcoming. And that's really important, especially in areas that you might have alert levels where conditions may not be safe for drinking or recreation. This may allow people to really know immediately whether or not the conditions in their in their environment and community are safe. And I think that that's a really great tool to have. Say, for example, some monitoring programs may require water samples to be collected, sent to a lab, be analyzed, and then transcribed and then sent back. Like that time delay might might be too long. For example, I think that's something I also spoke to you about earlier. So this is allowing people to like comprehend what is existing in their communities. I think that's really important because ultimately a lot of the work that we've seen has been driven by communities because they care, because it, they want to protect their their water, their you know environment, their communities, and also for future generations. And creating this opportunity to have it can be community-led, like I talked about community-based monitoring or involving communities with these platforms allows greater trust and transparency with decision-making. It's not 
so uncertain. You you can see what's going on. Um, so great, creating that trust, creating that you know, being more clear and communicative of that stuff is only going to be more beneficial for everybody. Right. And you talk a lot about the notion of having early warning detection. And I think like, you know, kind of in real time, you know, that's obviously something that is, is changing the way that researchers, experts like you can do an analysis to provide your research data forward to, again, go back to what ISD does, which is take that data, the science, put policy, strategy around it. And again, it's not just here in Manitoba, but it has an international impact. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of like early warnings, this could be so valuable for various things. We are like, I keep bringing up, we're experiencing climate change. We see these environmental pollutants, uh, whether it's from a growth in industry or these, you know, events that happen like a massive rainfall, it can allow people to make faster decisions and respond accordingly. So whether it's a community, a decision maker or an environmental manager, if you see that early warning of some sort of event, like an algal bloom or something that's about to happen, maybe the response can actually be implemented in a timely manner to either slow, eliminate, or reduce that impact of those things. And, and something that I talk about with my colleague, um, Jeff Dunn, quite a bit about was just the, like, the ability that we do with water quant- quantity. So for flood forecasting, we, we are able to forecast that information. We know every single spring we get an alert of whether or not we're going to have a flood this spring and where it's going to be and what community are affected. And we're hopeful that by trying to figure out how we can increase the data and understanding, and maybe if we can figure out how to, you know, detect early warnings of systems, like why can't we do something like that for for water quality and, and create early warnings for these sorts of events that are very large concerns for communities, people who rely on the water and, you know, creating, you know, more opportunity to, to see those relationships between different parameters when things change and predictions. And I, and I would say that uh, your passion is really, really fascinating and, and always a delight to, for me to have people on who are experts, who are so passionate about what, what they look at. And we talked about, you know, water as a human right. Uh, and, and as you say, people take it for granted. And yet, as we know, that there are communities that are not far from Winnipeg where, you know, drinking water is, is not available to them or they've got a boil water order. And in 2021, you know, you have to wonder what that's about. That's not an area that you're involved in, I understand. But when you talk about water, it's just one of those areas. And one of the things that I typically try and do, Madeline, is ask um, the guests to maybe talk about an area that they're passionate about. Sometimes people say, look, here's a great documentary or a movie. Uh, here's a, a place that you might want to look at, uh, whether it's a book or something, an author. Um, you've kind of given me a heads up that you would like to really come back and talk about the ed- best education is really immersing yourself uh, in, in, in nature and what you've done in water. So share with us your, your passion about, uh, about what you would leave with people in terms of a level of education on, on water. Yeah, and I think that's important. And I, and I just like to know there's a, there's a lot of resources available in terms of books and documentaries available on Netflix even. They're not hard to find uh, that can really kind of drive the education of everything from, you know, water, clean water and sanitation challenges, access to water, but also the challenges with um, algal blooms and like the water, water challenges are kind of endless. I won't specifically target one of them. Um, So there's lots of opportunities for that. 
But as you mentioned, I kind of wanted to speak a little bit about my more personal experience with water, which I think I highlighted earlier is very connected to lakes and rivers and hiking. My family always really encouraged um, going for weekend hikes, which is something that I carry very closely with me now. But I think that like the connection that I had with water growing up that really kind of drove me to where I was was because I, I experienced that and I saw like how powerful and incredible it is and also acknowledging where my water comes from and uh, how what goes down you know my my drain as I'm looking over to my my kitchen that's right beside me what where that goes and and kind of interacting and, and understanding that communicating that is something that I've found to kind of educate myself over time with water I've been very fortunate to actually be able to spend time on water but like I had also said we have major rivers here in Winnipeg and it's it's not too far to get somewhere to kind of immerse yourself outside and and with the ecosystem so I definitely encourage that for people who are who are able and are looking looking for some of that experience Right. I mean, and that's the, one of the things, I guess, as we get through this whole COVID, people can travel, people can experience it more and more. Um, I started off by saying that uh, of all the water on earth, just 3% of it is fresh water. And Madeline Stanley, uh, project officer with the International Institute for Sustainable Development's water program, you are doing your very best to ensure that that 3% is the best 3% we can have around the world. And you're doing it right here from Winnipeg. Thank you so much for your time, for your energy, for your interest, uh, for your professional approach to creating policy through science that allows those that are decision makers to make the best decisions they possibly can on the 3% of fresh water that we have in this universe, in this world. Thank you so much for having me today, Stuart. It's been a really good opportunity and also made me reflect a lot about the last few years of my life and how I got to where I was. So I also really appreciated that opportunity Um, Thank you again. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by the creative team at Full Current in Winnipeg. Thanks also to Trixie Mae Bituin. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. A production of the Sound Off Media Company. looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness then check out the natural man podcast join me host mike c as we explore all areas of human wellness physical mental and emotional learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health remember your doctor works for you learn biohacks neurohacks ways to improve sleep and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.